You're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. When I give lectures on growth weight problems, I often present a slide with an x-ray of a knee in a kid who hasn't fully finished their growth. I outline where the physis, or the growth plate, is. Then we show the metaphysis, or the area between the growth plate and the shaft of the bone. Then the epiphysis, the area between the growth plate and the joint space. And finally, the diaphysis, or the shaft of the bone. Then I generally ask the audience, where is the apophysis? Often I get crickets. In medicine, we often talk about all the main centers of growth, but seem to skip over the apophysis, which is a source of many problems in the growing athlete from overuse. So what exactly is the apophysis? It's an area of growing bone that doesn't provide longitudinal or length growth of the bone, so no height from that, but it is a tendon attachment site. We see overuse traction problems in these areas all the time, like Osgood-Schlatter in the knee, affecting the tibial tubercle, Little League elbow, affecting the medial pacondyle of the distal humerus, and Sievers in the heel, affecting the calcaneus. Today on the latest research review episode, I will be discussing some recent research about apophyseal problems. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Today, I have three articles I'm going to discuss. The first is an article by Harmut Galrap and was published in International Orthopedics in 2022. The article is titled The Osgood Schlatter Disease, a Large Clinical Series with Evaluation of Risk Factors, Natural Course, and Outcomes. This study was a prospective study, and it evaluated 126 consecutive patients seen in a pediatric orthopedic department and was focused on sports participation both before and after the diagnosis of Osgood Schlatter. Participants were asked to report duration of symptoms in months and when symptoms developed with activity. Growth rate in the previous six months was evaluated, and it also looked at days of training per week. No new therapeutic measures or diagnostic measures were introduced with this study, and patients were instructed to stretch the quadriceps and iliopsoas and how to modify their activity. No ban from sports was imposed when diagnosed with the Osgood-Schlatter. And the diagnosis of Osgood-Schlatter was based on functional pain both during and after activity, localized swelling of the tibial tubercle, but they were excluded if there was pain at the inferior pole of the patella, which would indicate Syndic-Larsen-Johansson apophysitis, any retropatellar pain, likely more suspicious of patellofemoral pain, any signs of knee instability, a knee effusion was present, or there was a large leg axis deviation. The endpoint for Osgood-Schlatter diagnosis was when they were free of functional knee pain in and after activity for at least three months. This study included 101 boys and 25 girls, and the mean age at diagnosis was 12.8 years, so it was 13.2 in the boys and 11.4 in the girls, and there was a statistically significant difference of the age in boys and girls at the onset of diagnosis, with the girls being younger than the boys. The average period was 6.7 months before the diagnosis occurred, but there was no statistically significant difference between boys and girls for the time to diagnosis. 70% the left knee was affected, 54% the right, and you would probably say, wait, that doesn't add up to 100%. Well, there was 25% that had both knees that were painful, so that's what accounted for the excess there. Only 61% could account for any reliable growth spurt in the last six months, and we often talk about, well, is it related to having a rapid growth spurt or not? The medium BMI was 19.5, and there was noted marked muscle shortening of the rectus femoris and iliopsoas in 34%, moderate muscle shortening in 22%. As far as the sports that they saw, 53% of these were from soccer, 14% in basketball, 6% in track and field, 5% from martial arts, 
4% in handball and 8% no sports. And you can obviously imagine this was probably a European study rather than a United States study with the high propensity of soccer and then inclusion of handball, which we don't see very often in the United States. The average experience in sports was five years, participating about 3.1 days per week. Only 6% reported paint during activity itself, which is a little surprising to me because I certainly see a large percentage of patients with Oshkosh Slaughter who do have pain with actual physical activity. 67% reported pain within the first hour after they finished activity, 28% in the first five hours, and then 5% longer than five hours after activity. The dominant leg side was found to be confirmed in 70% of soccer players as being the painful side. And 83% of the athletes were followed for a medium of 3.6 years after diagnosis, but 21 patients were lost to follow-up. So at that follow-up, 5% of patients still had pain both in and after sports. The average age of Osgood Slaughter ending was 13.8 years in the follow-up group. The boys were 14.3 years and the girls were 11.8 years. The duration, and this is again with no new treatment recommendations, they were allowed to continue their sports without restrictions, lasted an average of 19.1 months, so a little over a year and a half. And then 50% of patients in the study were free of functional symptoms by the 16th month. And then 75% of patients were free of symptoms after the 25th month. So just over two years, 75% of patients would be pain-free. And then 79% of patients still complained of persistent but not impairing their ability to do activities when kneeling or if there was direct contact to the tibial tubercle. So a fairly high percentage there. And 28% of patients actually switched their sport due to Oshkosh slaughter. There was no correlation between the age of onset, their BMI, or the evidence of muscle shortening that was correlated to the duration of Oshkosh slaughter. And overall, I think this is an interesting study on the epidemiology and the national course of Oshkosh slaughter in this cohort of young athletes. I think the most interesting things to me was the, the really low percentage of patients that had pain during activity. Again, my experience, that is a much higher percentage in, in the patients that I see in the office. I also found it was interesting that the diagnosis was based on swelling and then the pain, but it wasn't based on tenderness to palpation over the tibial tubercle. So that would kind of makes me a little suspicious. Why did they not include that as a diagnostic criteria for it? Because that to me is the hallmark there. Uh, they didn't comment on any radiographs, and, and that's certainly appropriate because we don't have to use radiographs in order to diagnose Oshkosh slaughter. It's not necessarily a radiographic diagnosis. It's a clinical diagnosis. We may be, find radiographic findings of Oshkosh slaughter. If we do get x-rays, which could be ossicles or fragmentation of the tibial tubercle or prominence of the tibial tubercle, but in the big picture of things, it's not necessary to make the clinical diagnosis of Oshkosh slaughter. So interesting. I think it adds to our literature a little bit, gives us some further information that is fairly similar to other studies that have been out there, but again, adds to our repertoire. So we'll be right back after this. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, 
<laughs> you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Welcome back to our research review episode that's focusing on the apophysis. We're going to jump right back in with the second study that was from Jim Muller, who published in January 2022 in the Clinical Journal of Sports Medicine. This article is titled Pelvic Region Avulsion Fractures in Adolescent Athletes, a Series of 242 Cases. This was a retrospective chart review from a private practice primary care clinic, and this study included all pelvic avulsion fractures treated over an 18-year period from January 2000 through December 2018 of patients aged 20 years or younger. The clinical exam findings in this group is 98% had pain on palpation, 85% had weakness when testing the muscles in the area of affected avulsion on exam, 47% had painful range of motion of the hip, 31% had decreased range of motion, and 23% presented with a limp. None had visible bruising or swelling, and I would certainly agree with that in my clinical experience. We don't tend to see a lot of bruising or swelling in our patients on exam. The interesting part was the limp, or it didn't comment about weight-bearing status. Frequently with these avulsion fractures, we often see in that first 7 to 10 days a very difficult time bearing weight. The mean age of diagnosis was 14.68 years, with a range from 8.98 years to 19.76 years. So this is one of those interesting apophyseal injuries. The avulsion injury is the, the thing we get concerned about. And the thing we need to remember with the pelvic apophyseal regions is that they do not stop growing until our late teen years, until our early 20s in some cases. So this is a problem of the apophysis that we can see go into the college age athlete, which is not typical for our other apophyseal problems in the knee or the foot or the elbow as examples. So we have to be thinking about this, especially if a patient presents with an injury where they feel a sharp pain or a pop. And if they feel a pain or a pop in the area of the groin and they're in that adolescent age group, the college age group, they can't bear weight for me, that's automatically we need to rule out a pelvic avulsion fracture first and foremost before we just default to a muscle strain. In this particular group, males accounted for 67% of the cases. The most common sports seen for the avulsion fractures were soccer, which was 27.7%. Track or cross country or just running in general accounted for 21.5% of the avulsion fractures, and then football was 11.6%. The most common mechanism were running or sprinting for 44% of the avulsion fractures. Kicking was 17%, and then a fall was 6%. Surprisingly, only 34% felt or heard a pop. Anecdotally for me, that that is more often, at least in my experience with that. I, I thought that was a little bit low. Radiographs diagnosed 88% of the cases, and then 12% were found on MRI. And the caveat here with the MRI, these were usually in the younger patients. And I actually just had a patient at my office this past week who came in who had an ischial tuberosity avulsion fracture. And on their plain films, it was fine. But on the MRI, you could clearly see the avulsion injury affecting the ischial tuberosity apophysis. And we have to remember that it's not necessarily appears bony on the x-rays in the younger patients. And this was a younger patient. So it had not ossified on the x-ray yet, but there is still that apophysis that's there and it can evulse. So you have to keep that in your differential, even if you have a normal x-ray in those younger patients who may not have developed their apophysis radiographically yet. I, I certainly would agree that, that that may be something that we would need to look at. Although a lot of times that the patients that I see in my office with those, I will actually just diagnose them clinically, talk about that with the parent rather than doing necessarily further imaging, but certainly we could in these younger patients. 
The most common site for the avulsion fractures was the anterior superior iliac spine, or the ASIS, and that was 29.7% of the cases. The ischial tuberosity was 26.1% of the cases. The anterior inferior iliac spine was 24.8% of the cases. The iliac crest was 12.8%. The lesser trochanter was 6.2%, and the greater trochanter was 0.4%. Interestingly, there was a statistically significant difference between males and females with two specific sites. Males were more commonly affected by the anterior inferior iliac spine avulsion fractures, the AIIS, more than females by a 31.5% to 11.2% ratio. And then the iliac crest was more common in females than males by a 26.2% to a 6.2% ratio in this particular cohort. None of the patients for any of these avulsion fractures were treated surgically. The mean duration of treatment was 47.53 days, so that's about six and a half weeks, and the range was anywhere from 14 days to 180 days, so I'm a little interested about the ones that were so short at that 14-day period, because I have not successfully returned anybody back to play. There was a slightly longer duration for females than males, but there was no statistically significant difference between the two. I do disagree with the conclusion of this study that pelvic avulsion fractures are a rare injury. It is something I see regularly in the office. I mean, being in the office three days this week already, I've had three or four of these already that I can recall off the top of my head. I do teach residents and medical students that if you do get a teenager with a history that they were doing something such as kicking or sprinting and they feel a pop in the pelvis and cannot bear weight like I was mentioning earlier, that to me is a pelvic avulsion fracture in any teen or even young college-age athlete until proven otherwise. And they deserve an AP pelvis x-ray and a frog leg of the affected hip from an imaging standpoint. And I, I think that that is a necessary part of your workup in those patients. You don't want to automatically default. And that's where I see one of the more common misdiagnoses out there on this. It can be from athletic trainers. It can be from a physical therapist, can be from primary care doctors, is missing that pelvic effulgent fracture and just discarding it as a hip flexor injury. So we need to remember those. We need to keep those high in our differential because they are actually very common. And I think they're probably honestly just not looked at frequently enough. So an interesting study, again, adds some interesting data to the literature. There was a follow-up study that Jim had published that I was going to comment on, but I'll, I'll put it in the show notes for something that you can look up as, a, as another one that followed up on this case series as well. And then the final study we'll discuss was published earlier this year in the Scandinavian Journal of Medicine and Science in Sports. And the article is from Olivier Materne, and I'm assuming, I'm hoping that's the correct name. And this was done by our colleagues overseas. The article is titled Shedding Light on Incidents and Burden of Fysial Injuries in a Youth Elite Football Academy. And that's football, meaning European football, i.e. soccer. And it's a four-season prospective study. This study looked at a group of 551 youth male soccer players from the Aspire Academy in Qatar from 11 different age groups from U9, so under 9, to U19, under 19 groups, followed over four consecutive seasons of soccer. This was a prospective cohort study, and it was following from the years August 2012 to June 2016. The U9 to U12 group participated or completed practices or games on average for nine hours per week, 10 months out of the year. And then the U13 to U19 group practiced or competed for 14 hours a week, 10 months out of the year. The evaluators in this study were a sports physician and physiotherapist, and history and exams were conducted to evaluate acute versus gradual or acute on gradual injuries, pain at insertion points on palpation, pain with passive movements and stretches, as well as pain with active movements and resisted testing. If imaging was used, a musculoskeletal radiologist commented on things such as edema or physeal widening, and if the radiology findings and clinical suspicions matched, the diagnosis was made. If there weren't any imaging findings, the diagnosis was made on the clinical exam and history, as well as outcomes from rehabilitation. 
Over the course of this four-year study, 2,204 injuries were recorded from 551 players. Of these total 2,204 injuries, 307 of these injuries, or 14% of the total injuries affecting these youth soccer players, involved the physis. 80% of the physial injuries resulted in time loss and accounted for 30% of the severe injuries, which in this group was defined as any time loss greater than four weeks. So a a fair burden of the total injuries overall for time loss injuries. 90% of the physial injuries involved the lower limbs, 6% were the upper limbs, and 4% involved the spine. And then 60% of the injuries occurred during training, 39% during games, and 2% during their fitness and performance testing. So your odds of getting hurt in your fitness and performance testing are fairly low, but during training and games, that's where your highest risk is. 26 of the physial injuries were actual physial fractures, and then 42% of those were from contact. The other 58% were non-contact physial fractures. The median age for all physial injuries was 14.7 years, and then the 25th to 75th percentile interquartile range was from 13.1 to 15.7 years, so that's kind of the typical years that we see a lot of the apophyseal problems. Of the apophyseal injuries, which accounted for 84% of all the physial injuries together, 23% were injuries needing only brief medical attention, and they felt that it was important to include these in there because they do have relevance. They may require a little bit of maintenance, even though they may not account for time loss. These were important for them to account for these, that these were things that were causing athletes some issues, whereas the other 77% were actual true time loss injuries. Apophyseal injuries of the pelvis accounted for 56% of the injuries total. And they used, rather than athletic exposures, days per a season of the team. So 45 days per squad season of time loss was accounted for by pelvic apophyseal injuries. The peak incidence of foot and ankle apophyseal injuries was in the U11 group. For the knee, it was in U14 group. And hip and pelvis, it was U17. So we see different incidences of the rate of the apophyseal problems, which would also correlate oftentimes when we see a lot of these apophyseal areas going through their peak before fusion. Sievers was the most common diagnosis in the foot and ankle apophyseal problems, and it accounted for 79% of the foot and ankle apophyseal injuries. Oshgood Schlatter was the most common for the knee, accounting for 78% of the knee apophyseal problems. In the pelvis, the anterior inferior iliac spine accounted for 39%. The os pubis was 23%. The lesser trochanter was 15%, and the anterior superior iliac spine was 13%. Uh, For a typical squad of 25 players, they lost an average of 157 days per season due to physial injuries, and the U16 group had the highest burden with 444 days lost each season due to physial injuries. The U13 to U16 age group was noted to have the highest burden of an age range with a loss anywhere between 208 to that high of the 444 days per season per squad season that we talked about. And then the burden of these physial injuries accounts for 33 to 49% of the total injury burden on those teams. So in that U13 to U16 group, we see a much higher percentage of physial problems as the main injuries that are causing the total injury burden of the teams. In terms of most common overall apophyseal problems, just as a general, Oshgood Schlatter was most common at 28% of the overall injury burden. The anterior inferior iliac spine was next at 17% of total injuries, pubic injuries at 14%, and then Seavers at 11%. Of note, spondylolysis was actually included in this cohort, and that accounted for 4% of these injuries, and it had a median age of 15 years, and interestingly resulted in only 31 days lost per squad season. So clearly they're managing things differently with the spondylolysis problem over in Qatar than we are in the United States. And if you go back and listen to the episode I did with Stan Herring on spondylolysis, we usually talk about a period of time loss of about three months. So certainly much longer period of time than what was found in this particular cohort. 
Some limitations noted by the authors was that the incidents that they use instead of individual exposure and that typical athlete exposure we've discussed in previous research episodes. So that's a practice or a game counts for one athletic exposure. And oftentimes we describe injury rates as per 1000 athletic exposures. They were not using this or recorded this. So they thought it was actually a little bit more relevant by how they recorded it by squad seasons of the injury burden per squad season rather than necessarily the individual. They also noted that their specific classification of diagnoses was novel and not something that was easily comparable to other previously conducted studies, and they were not sure of its reproducibility since it was a novel classification for diagnoses. So obviously, these three studies are primarily epidemiologic studies, which they do provide us good information. An area that's sorely lacking in research is in the treatment of the apophysis. So very few studies have looked at the utility of the various treatment methods out there, commonly used in sports medicine. There's even fewer randomized trials out there regarding apophyseal problems. So this is an area ripe for research and actually likely ripe for a research interest group that's sorely needed in PRISM. I was looking back at our PRISM research interest groups, and there is not one that specifically addresses the apophysis directly. I don't know. Maybe that's one we need to think about. I I personally love the apophysis because it's truly a pediatric sports medicine problem. It's not an injury that I have to really talk about in adults with the exception of some of the pelvic ones in in our college age athletes, but we still oftentimes put them under the umbrella of pediatrics. They're so common, I think. I mean, I see them with regularity in our office and there's still so much we can learn about how we can manage these conditions. Uh, I'm certainly appreciative of the authors of these studies that I reviewed today and contributing to our overall knowledge base of these apophyseal disorders. And I, I hope you got something out of this review, just some further things. And if you want to look at these articles in more detail, I will have links to the PubMed listings of each of these articles in our show notes from today. I appreciate you listening. Be sure to check out our entire podcast library of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at pedsportspod, that's P-E-D-S, and then sports plural, and then pod. And then please leave us feedback. I do take all feedback, both good, bad, and constructive, to make this a better resource for you, our listeners. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. 